This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll be jumping on the election train by exploring misinformation issues. We'll also learn about gender mainstreaming and what that actually is. Then we'll get some tips on stress management because we all might need that right now. This is your fast break. The election is 16 days away, and it's been a wild ride, to say the least. Amid the long waiting lines, technical difficulties registering online, and unofficial ballot collection boxes popping up in some areas, voters are dealing with a lot this election cycle. To wade through some of the misinformation, we've brought on an expert to help us. My guest today is Paul Barrett. He's the deputy director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU. Welcome to the show, Professor Barrett. Glad to be here. Given that there, you know, there has been quite a bit of misinformation, both about the pandemic itself, and then obviously um, there's been a bunch of political misinformation and disinformation that has been flying around. But I'm sort of curious, in these final weeks, if you have any thoughts about what people should be watching out for, and also I'm curious if you expect sort of a ramp up in disinformation. I do expect a ramp up in disinformation and misinformation, both intentionally false material and perhaps in the case of misinformation, unintentionally false material. Uh, I think it will be connected directly to the election as well as to the continuing pandemic, but I think people need to focus the most in coming days on uh, politically oriented falsehoods. And I think, you know, we've had a kind of model for that in the right-wing generated notion that there's going to be a liberal coup that materializes to get rid of Donald Trump, um, which has been spreading sort of to all corners of the internet, beginning with Facebook and Twitter posts uh, back in the summer, and then getting picked up and amplified by right-wing figures like uh, Don Bongino and Mark Levin on Fox, and then a whole slew of right-wing sites and publications and so forth until this has become almost commonplace, this notion that liberals uh, led by Joe Biden will try to kick uh, Trump out of office after he rightfully wins, which of course is alluring because it's a mirror image of the reality that President Trump has been explicitly saying that he's not sure he'll leave in a peaceful exchange of power after the election if he loses, and that uh, he'll only accept a loss if it's in what he considers to be a free and fair election, which is kind of code language for uh, saying that he doesn't intend to leave at all. So I think people need to be very much on their guard for this type of material, which is difficult for the platforms to deal with. First of all, it's difficult to, to track it down if it's proliferating in all directions simultaneously. But second, it, you know, it very much resembles just sort of ordinary politics and ordinary expression of, of opinion and therefore doesn't always qualify uh, as removable under the rules that the platforms have uh, set up for themselves. This is something that we've talked about before, which is sort of some misinformation and some disinformation. You can use media literacy tools, right? You can sort of train yourself to, to know who your source is or seek out sources that are reliable or trustworthy. But when it's coming from the political candidates themselves, when some of this misinformation or exaggeration is coming from the candidates themselves, it becomes really difficult to parse that out. Uh, it does, although the platforms have, whatever you think of them overall, have gotten noticeably more aggressive in trying to police uh, 
some of this, you know, the, some of Trump's uh, assertions, for example, about the pandemic to sort of join the two t- subjects together. It's no more dangerous than the ordinary flu. Well, that was taken down uh, as being misinformation about the pandemic that would be harmful to, uh, to people, potentially. So it, it is possible to, uh, to discriminate among different types of falsehoods and take down the ones that are more dangerous, potentially physically harmful to people, and try to uh, act on those. But you're right, as a general matter, it seems to me to be an almost insurmountable obstacle uh, to keep these platforms clear of this type of misleading information. And I mean, you talked a little bit about this already, but I am sort of curious what you do as an individual. Is now the time to sort of be more, you know, media literate or is now the time to turn your social media off? (laughs) I mean, I think it can be hard to know what to do in these last few weeks, but I'm curious, what are you doing? Yeah, well, I think one thing to do that spans platforms and and individuals is, is just to slow down. You know, Twitter has sort of sent a signal that it thinks it would be good if people slowed down a little bit on Twitter by steering them toward uh, when they want to retweet something to having to make a comment on it. It seems like a fairly innocuous and even pallid gesture, but I think it has some good thinking behind it. The idea is if, the, if people have to stop and at least write a sentence about something before they retweet it, it might occur to them that what they're retweeting is not necessarily good substantial information. And beyond that small gesture, I think if, if you just stop and read things more carefully, don't just send a headline because it attacks a, a politician you dislike or supports a politician you like, uh, and instead think about it a little bit, both what you send out yourself and what you read and believe, that that's pretty much the, the core smart thing to do in a chaotic environment like this. One other thing I'm sort of curious about is, you know, I think in the last election, we saw a lot of online activity go offline. I think particularly when you're talking about organizations like Russia's Internet Research Agency, they were stoking a lot of sort of groups to create events in local areas and go offline. And I'm curious if if we're seeing any of that right now and if that's something people should also be careful of in terms of like joining in events in the lead up to the election. We haven't seen any particular political demonstrations that have been identified as having been cooked up by Russian operatives or, for that matter, Chinese operatives or Iranian operatives. But there have been some examples of sort of people being drawn unwittingly into activity that presumably they wouldn't have been involved with otherwise. There was that instance some months ago where freelance writers were writing articles for what was purporting to be a news website that turned out to be basically a Russian front. And that, that's an illustration that uh, if you're not careful, if you're not thoughtful about who you're dealing with, you may end up acting at the behest of God knows who. And uh, I think that will be well worth their while to be cautious about that. The one last thing I would ask you is just about voting specifically. And if there is anything that people should watch out for or be careful of around voting and perhaps efforts to get people to go to the wrong ballot box or basically any sort of attempts to block people from voting. I think the main thing to be on guard about there is going to be, I I hate to say it, the the presence of hostile individuals at polling places. From the president on down, we've had indications that 
people are being encouraged to go and watch polling places, whatever that means. And so in some instances, that's illegal activity. You're, you're not allowed to just enter a polling place and loiter and try to intimidate people. But in other places, it, it may not be illegal to be outside a polling place. And I think voters need to have the courage of their convictions and not be intimidated by the presence of potentially hostile people who seem to be there uh, to discourage them from voting. It, it's uh, horrendous that we even need to talk about this in this country, but I, I'm afraid that, that we do. In terms of online material you're going to encounter, there's already been some material online about liberal cabals destroying ballots and that the post office is involved with some big scheme to uh, destroy b ballots. And I think all of that needs to be viewed with the skepticism that it deserves. And people need to just focus on what's important, which is going out and casting their vote for their candidate, however they choose to do it, in person, by mail, or what have you. But I do think that voting this time around is going to be a, a more challenging exercise. It already is a cha more challenging exercise. People voting early in certain states, Texas, Georgia, are having to stand in hours-long lines for no obvious reasons, and they just need to show some fortitude and get their vote in. That is really helpful and good advice. So I want to thank you so much for joining me here today and for chatting through some of this stuff. I know it is a very confusing time, and I'm sure our audience really appreciates your insight. My pleasure. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. A few weeks ago, we heard from Pipeline CEO and founder Katika Roy about gender equity. Today, we'll hear from her again as she talks with Talib about how gender equity is critical in policymaking. Well, it's great to have you back on the show, Katika. Thanks. Thank you for having me back. Uh, so we're going to talk about gender and policy today. First off, can you describe what gender mainstreaming is? Absolutely. So gender mainstreaming is looking at public policy through the lens of gender. We often assume that our policies, and we've seen a lot of economic policies come through this year with the pandemic, a lot of stimulus, that they are gender blind. But that's not true. They're actually gender ignorant. That is, they are not taking into account the impact on men versus women. And this doesn't just impact women, this impacts men as well, because there are different policies that negatively impact men and women. To give you an example, in the jobs report, in the August jobs report, we added 1.4 million jobs and unemployment was at 8.4% on average. But when you begin to look at that through an intersectional lens or through a gender mainstreaming lens, you begin to see that, for instance, unemployment for Black women is at 12%, unemployment for Latinas is at 10.5%, and unemployment for white women is actually below the average at 7.3%. So looking at it through the lens of gender is an important opportunity for us to make sure that we are actually writing good policy and that we're also, when we have fiscal policy in particular, that we're writing policies that are better for our economy as well. Can you explain how gender biases affect tariff calculations? So issues like the wage gap and how women earn less but still have student loans to pay. Absolutely. So we think about, we often talk about the pay gap and we talk about 82 cents on the dollar. The pay gap has actually gotten worse in the last decade. 
the pay gap actually only accounts for the money that's coming into women's wallets. We actually look at it from a labor economics perspective as a wage gap. So pay gap is certainly part of that. But the three-legged stool, the other two, one is tariffs and the pink tax, and the other is student loans. So for the pink tax, on average, women actually 50% of the time pay 7% more for their items. So that could be anything from clothes to dry cleaning to, you know, shaving cream, whatever that might be. A really important piece of that is tariffs. And why there's gender bias in tariffs is because gender is actually part of our tariff code, that it is part of the statistical calculations that we use to tax incoming items into the United States. And for labor and apparel, about 75% of that tariff burden for U.S. households falls on women. And on average, for women, they pay a 15.1% tax on things like footwear and apparel. Men pay 11.9%. It's not, sometimes men pay more, sometimes women pay more, but on average, women are, we're actually paying more out of our wallets. And then the third part is student loans. So women make up 57% of all college graduates, but they hold 67% of all student loan debt. So they're actually paying more over their lifetime for their education. There's two reasons for that. One is that they are less likely to be financially supported in college by their families. And the second is that the pay gap actually starts in college before they actually enter the workforce. So they are less able to pay off their student loans as quickly as their male colleagues. Well, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, and, and, you know, going back to the, to the tax issue, can you delve into why the pay gap uh, affects all taxpayers? We talk about the fact that the gender pay gap cuts straight through the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. So I took 15 different issues and applied a gender lens to them. For instance, we could close the Social Security savings gap by a third if we close the gender pay gap. That's because the majority of all women actually sit under the Social Security savings cap, Hmm. the amount of wages that are taxed by Social Security. That is actually should be critically important to us because Social Security is actually set to dip into its reserves this year. And that money is will run out if we don't shore it up. So that's one. Also, women are uh, more likely to live in poverty. They're twice as likely to live in poverty in retirement than men. We are paying for people regardless. We don't have the choice of whether or not to pay for them. We are paying for them. The other piece is in criminal justice. So one of the things that happens is that women who are arrested on average make 30% less than men who are arrested, which means Mm. that they are actually held in custody before they've even had trial. And 80% of those women are mothers. So it is impacting not only them, but it's impacting their children. We know that when we separate children and moms, there are huge impacts to those children in terms of their educational performance, their mental health. And so we have this, I think, sometimes idea that we can choose whether or not we pay for people. But as an economy, you can't. You can only choose how we pay for people. And so we need to think about the investments that we make in ensuring everyone's equity and their opportunity, because that's actually good for everyone. Yeah. 
so we have a presidential election coming up in case anyone didn't know <laughs> during the primaries you interviewed some of the candidates uh, including senators cory booker and kamala harris and vice president joe biden regarding their commitment to gender mainstreaming uh, so what were some of their responses and and what would a true equal pay law look like I loved their responses. They were all different, but the two pieces that I will focus on is that one of the things that Joe Biden said, and you saw this when he released his uh, statement on women economic policies, which is that he committed to gender mainstreaming, essentially, to applying a gender lens to every single policy that he put forward. Mm. We need to talk more about this because I live in middle America. I live in the heart of the country and people here don't know that. They don't know that that is his commitment. And it's a really important commitment because women are more than the pay gap. We're more than childcare. We are more than the issues that are often attributed to women's issues. Fundamentally, women's issues are not only family issues, they're economic issues. And we touch almost every piece of the economy. And then Kamala Harris put forward the most comprehensive pay law for ensuring equity. And that is right now our laws actually are the responsibility of those who aren't being paid equitably to use them. She, in what both Canada and Iceland have done, her proposal would move that responsibilities to companies. That is companies must prove that they are paying people equitably, otherwise they face a fine. That is not only the right thing to do, it's also important for the American taxpayer because if companies aren't paying people equitably, we are subsidizing those companies. That is fundamentally what is happening. So just a bit of context, both the Equal Pay Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act were passed in the 60s. The first made it illegal to pay different wages to men and women. And the second made it illegal to discriminate against people based on their race, color, sex, religion, national origin. So why is it that we still need gender equity in this country? They both rely on the people who are experiencing the unequal pay or the discrimination to actually raise their hand. And by definition, if you are experiencing that, you are not in a position of power. Right. And what and I can tell you this from my personal experience, but also scores of people who have told me their story, which is that when you are thinking about speaking up, you are fundamentally thinking about the economic risk that you might be taking. Even though retaliation is illegal, it still happens. That is, if I speak up about unequal pay, will I actually experience a backlash? And so what we need to do is shift the responsibility from people who are experiencing inequity and move it to where the decision actually lies, which is with mostly companies and organizations who are making the decisions around how they're promoting people and how they're paying people. It was interesting, a couple of things that were done in the previous administration that moved this forward, but again, not enough, 
is uh, one was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed into law. And of course, Justice Ginsburg had a, in her dissenting opinion, had a pretty heavy hand in what that would look like, which was actually the law that I used to be paid equitably. And it changed the statute of limitations because you may not know that you are not paid equitably for years. And so it actually changed that statute. The other thing that happened, and we took a step forward, September 30th of 2019, it was the first time in the United States that companies that had 100 employees or more reported their pay by gender and race ethnicity to the EEOC. That has since been scrapped, but it's an important piece in ensuring equity in our country. And from an economic perspective, just the pure direct impact, not you know all the other after effects, right? Things like, like social security and the gender jail graph, but just the pure direct impact to the US economy is $512 billion if we close the gender pay gap. It is wow. not only the right thing to do, it is really important to our economic recovery. Yeah, that's incredible. Kartika, your 2020 voting guide launched a few weeks ago. Can you give us an overview of, of what that entails? It was inspired by the article that I interviewed um, the presidential candidates for. Uh -huh. And the idea was to take 15 issues, so from criminal justice to healthcare to the economy and GDP, to entrepreneurship and innovation, and actually look at it through the lens of gender. And the idea behind it was that to give voters a simple, simple, because <laughs> policy is not often simple, yeah. but a simple guide to look at policies that are being put forward by candidates, by presidential candidates, by Senate candidates, by uh, candidates that might be running for governor, whatever that might be, and give them a guide of what they should look for in candidates' policies to ensure gender equity, that it actually gender mainstreamed 15 issues so that people could actually see that these issues are not male or female and they're not gender blind, that we must ensure gender mainstreaming of all of these issues. And we should be holding our elected officials or those who want to be our elected officials to account that they should have to answer to that because it's not only about women, it's actually about everyone. And where could our listeners uh, find that resource? They can go to thevotingguide.com, so thevotingguide.com, and they can download it. All they need is an email address. Great. I think most people have that nowadays. <laughs> they should. I got, I got my first email address in 1998. I still have oh, it. Oh, really? I, I do. You still check it? <laughs> no, not very often. Great. Well, uh, Kartika, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Next up, we'll hear from Fast Company staff writer Pavithra Mohan with some advice on how to de-stress and regain focus. If you're having trouble focusing, you're not alone. A recent report found that workers' ability to focus and complete tasks was down 31% in August as compared to pre-pandemic levels. When you're overwhelmed or stressed out, your ability to focus diminishes. This four-point plan will help you get back on track. Take control. When you're consumed with worry, your body's physiological response can get in the way of focusing. Stress reduces the cognitive flexibility that's necessary to put things in perspective and be creative and collaborative. So you have to get a handle on what's stressing you out and deal with it. 
First, start with the things you can control. If you're upset about what's going on in the world, limit your information intake and stop doom scrolling. If you're worried, hurt, or angry, try reframing the situation to see if you can find a lesson or opportunity in the mix. If there are external factors you can't control, try to tune them out at least temporarily so you can calm your body and make some space in your brain. Manage your load. Next, take stock of what you really have to get done. Sometimes we're victims of our own inability to say no. Psychiatrist Edward Hallowell advises practicing CDE, or curtail, delegate, and eliminate. Go through your task list, ruthlessly eliminate what doesn't need to be done, and delegate what you can. Organizing your environment and tasks can also give you a sense of control and help you get focused. Once you narrow down the tasks and begin to dive in, pick a few easy wins, something that you can get done in five to 10 minutes. You'll get a small hit of dopamine that'll make you wanna do more. Care for yourself. Basic care and maintenance of your body is going to help you focus better. You can't deprive your body of what it needs and then expect it to focus on demand. So make sure you're drinking plenty of water, eating regularly, and going to bed at a reasonable hour. That care also extends to your environment and the people around you. Asking for help can not only make you feel like you're not alone, but depending on who you ask, you may also find the solutions to your problems more quickly. So reach out. Know yourself. It's important to understand and protect the times of day when your energy and ability to focus is highest. For some people, meditation or a hot cup of coffee is the key to regaining focus. For others, getting outside and going for a brisk run does the trick. The bottom line is you know yourself and what works for you better than anyone else. When you're having trouble focusing, do a quick body scan to figure out where you're feeling your stress. Just take a few minutes to breathe and create a sense of calm, which will also help you determine what you need most in the moment. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.